Hey, welcome. Glad to have you with us. If you're a guest with us this morning, glad you are here. Uh, if you have a Bible or uh, app, whatever, turn it open to Luke chapter 3. We're going to turn there in just a second. Uh, it's summer. How many of you are big ice cream fanatics? Any ice cream? Any salt and straw fan? Yeah, totally. Uh, that one got collapsed. How many? Baskin Robbins? No. <laughs> Uh, it's like really classy ice cream, really, okay. Anyway, uh, I can totally take or leave dessert most of the time. Like, I'm a total fry and chip guy. Like, I'll eat those like there's no tomorrow. Desserts, take it or leave it. Although ice cream, I'm, I'm a fan of. I could eat a whole carton in one sitting, for sure. And uh, we, that's, so we don't have ice cream in our house all the time. But when we do, I'm typically the scooper and distributor of ice cream. Anybody carry that role of the, the ice cream scoop? Yeah. So that's kind of my gig, oftentimes. And so... Um, we all know, though, that the person who distributes the ice cream is in control of, right, portion distribution, right? This is the person who, uh, like, send your e- e- economist to go do this, because uh, this is one of those jobs where no matter how much you try to get everything equally distributed into bowls, we always do that thing, right? Or you start to, like, measure it out, though, with your eyes. You're like, I think I put a little bit more mass into that one. And you start scoping out which bowl has more. And, like, you weigh it with your hands, like, as if you can tell grams, right? Like, by your hand, like, I think that's about two grams heavier. And then that gives you an opportunity to become one of two people, right? You are either the person who says, this bowl has more, and I will make sure it gets to somebody else. Or you're that person who's like, I'm going to hold that back for myself, Right? You know what I'm talking about, ice cream scoopers. And so, and you have a couple of tricks there too, where it's like you can offer the lesser ice cream bowl to other people first, holding, like if they're sitting down, you know, you can hold yours like higher and like they never, they never see what you're holding out on them with, right? And then, uh, you know, there's a few other tricks. I think there might even be a third person, but that's the person who says, you know, puts everything in front of the others and is like, go ahead, equal opportunity ice cream pickers around here. And, uh, but then you're really banking on other people's generosity at that point because you're like, I bet they'll leave the bigger one for me because I did the work of scooping. And so you have all of these mind games going on, right, in the, the economy of who gets the most ice cream. Anyway, um, you know, you're, you're kind of banking on generosity, right? So anyways, uh, the concern of our series, we're starting a new series called Generous today. And the concern of our series is really... Uh, not about who gets the most ice cream, but it is about something deeper. It's about character. It's about something uh, that deals with how we steward the resources that we have and the relationships that we're in. Right? This is actually uh, something where the stakes are much higher than who gets the most ice cream. But this is about what we do with everything God gives us. Ultimately, it shapes... Um, how we interact with the resources we have. And, and if you really want to know who you are, like you take a look, and what you value, you take a look at what you do with what you've been given. And so we're getting into a series today where we look at a particular aspect of Christian character called generosity. And it's called Christian character because it is a, actually christ-like character that christ is the generous one and and so as a church here at cnbc we're really into growing into christ-likeness that 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 is kind of the central thing that we're about here about who jesus is and growing in relationship with him and and that's because he's the unique god of the universe in whose image we're made after right and he's in the business of taking the brokenness of our world the ways we distort the image of god in us and he's into transforming that and making it right and he does does that by inviting us into a relationship with himself and actually transforming us from the inside out to be like him. 
And so one of the things we try to do regularly around here at, at Cedar Mill is like we, we want to kind of help focus and, and speak to the, the guiding values that kind of shape ministry around here. And so we just finished seven months on the book of Ephesians, and, and now for the month of August, we're going to focus in on one of our kind of core values. Now, we, we break values down into like three categories, just so you know. This is like one of those good reminders of like what, what does Cedar Mill think is important. And so we kind of break it into three categories. We, we want to be a people of faith, right? Really growing in communion with God, relationship with Him. People of love, like that's about growing in community with each other, as well as a voice of hope in our world where we actually we want to serve the world well. Uh, in the name of Jesus. And so um, then we kind of get more specific within each one of those. And so as a community of love, we say, here's how we want to do that. And here's, here's kind of as we engage the scriptures and look at how the gospel transforms our lives, this is how we want to do that. First thing is we want to do authentic community or life together. And remember the com- Together series from like last fall? Any, nope? Cool. Um, um, so... Yeah, thanks. All right. You're like, I remember we're supposed to do life together. Good. All right. Apply that. Now, uh, the other part of doing life as a community of love is to do life for others, to be, to live life in generosity and hospitality. And so we're going to zero in on that kind of core value that shapes what we're trying to do as a church around here and look at that over the next couple of weeks. So here's Here's the deal. Generosity, oftentimes, we kind of think of it as this extra optional bonus, like charity. Like, you could do it if it feels good or you want to, and that's like a good extra on top of what's expected. And and generosity is actually, biblically speaking, it's more about doing justice. It's about imitating God in his character. And what God does consistently throughout Scripture is he disadvantages himself to advantage someone else. And every time characters in scriptures disadvantage themselves to advantage somebody else, he calls that righteousness or justice. And, and, and they do that with generosity. And so uh, our plan for the next couple weeks is very simple. We're going to look at generosity with our stuff today, generosity with our words next week, and then we're going to wrap it up with generosity with our time. Now, we typically look, think generosity is all about money, Right? Like, be generous with your money. Give a lot of money. And so we kind of exclude ourselves from this virtue of generosity by the sheer fact that we don't think we have that much money. Right? And so, like, I don't need to be generous because I don't have that much to be generous with. But generosity is really more of a whole life kind of thing. And so we selected stuff, words, and time because that's something all of us have. Some of us have more stuff than others. Some of us... Uh, but all of us have stuff, right? All of us have words and relationships, and all of us have time. We are all subject to 24-hour days. We are all subject to seven-day weeks and 52-week years. And so some of us might have more commitments than others, but at the end of the day, we all have stuff, words, and time. And God is calling us to this life of generosity with our whole lives, and so we're going to take a look at how that plays out. So let's get started today with our relationship with stuff. Now, does God have things to say about our relationship with stuff? Yeah, like he has a lot to say, in fact. And when you ask the question, what does God have to say about something, it's good to kind of just take in the whole of Scripture, right? So you want to start at the beginning, work your way to the end. Uh, and if you go back to the beginning, God creates stuff, doesn't he? He creates matter, right? He creates everything and calls it good. And this is important, right? So stuff is not bad. It's good. 
in right relationship. But the thing is, what God calls good, we came along and called God, right? Like that good stuff God made, we're like, oh, that's, that's ultimate. And so that gets us in trouble. We call what God calls good, we call God. And so we cling to what we own as if it's ultimate. And so it begins to own us. And it begins to take claims on our lives. And so we, we make it ultimate in terms of offering us security. And we think, I have savings, so I'm going to be okay. I have stock, so I'm going to be okay. Or I don't have that, so I'm not going to be okay. Right? So we, we kind of weight our security into our stuff. Or our identity. We make that ultimate for our identity. Think about branding. How good are marketers at getting their brand wired into your identity? Right? I'm a Mac person. I'm a PC person. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm not a BMW person, but maybe you are. I don't know. And that's like, that's in there. It's a party. Like, that's in your garage and it's in your identity. Right? And so we kind of link ourselves to the things that we have. I've got to have the newest of this kind of thing because I'm that kind of person. You see the, see the relationship and how that works together? And so we're taking what God calls good and we're saying, that's God. That makes me who I am. And then we also do that for our own happiness too. We find our stuff uh, is ultimate for our happiness. And we think, I will have a nicer life if I have nicer stuff. And I will be happier when dot, 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 I have this. And so stuff becomes this distraction and a hindrance to the kinds of relationships that actually honor God and reflect his generosity back into the world. Ever feel like my stuff is getting in the way of my relationships? If you don't, we probably should, because I believe that it does. So, generosity with our stuff, first of all, in your notes, is how we respond to God's presence. Generosity with our stuff is actually how we respond to God's presence. So, go to Luke chapter 3, verse 1. We go to Luke chapter 3 because of one very important reason. And it's a great place to start because it's where the stage is being set for Jesus' public ministry. Jesus comes on the public scene really here halfway through chapter 3 and then carries, off his, carries on his teaching ministry and does the work that he does um, after this. So if you've ever been to a concert, you go to see a headlining band, right? That headlining band has selected the opening band for a reason, right? Have you ever, have you ever noticed how well the opening band sets up and complements the headliner? Right? Like they, they work together. The headliner chooses the opener because they feel like that's the best way to set up the show that they want you to experience. And so Jesus comes on the scene after John's opening act because John sets the stage beautifully for what Jesus is about to bring. And so here we are in Luke Chapter 3, verse 1. Follow along. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. All right, that's verses 1 and 2. I read through that fast because you probably don't know a lot of these people, but what's happening already is Luke is grounding his story in reality. He's telling you this happened during this time when these people were around doing these things. All right? So this isn't myth. This isn't make-believe. He's saying this is history. This happened. All right? And so the word of God comes to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness... And then he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
So John comes on the scene. It's historical. It's real people, real place, real time. And he opens his show with a cover song, right? From Isaiah chapter 40. And he says this, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so John's opening track is this cover song from Isaiah 40. But what he's doing is he's using this strange metaphor, right? Like there's this highway for the Lord, like get ready for God's coming, He's, he's coming, everybody's about to see his saving action in the world, and then he uses this metaphor of valleys and mountains. And you're like, yeah, that totally speaks to me. I totally think in that metaphor all the time. Well, no, you should be going like, what is going on? Why is John choosing to use this metaphor of mountains being leveled and valleys being raised? And, and we're going to come back to that. But what you need to understand is John is saying when God comes in his salvation, he's going to close the gaps between the high and the low. And we're going to come back to that in just a second. So he speaks this word of Isaiah. And then he goes on in verse 7, says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Okay, vipers, good thing, bad thing. (laughs) <laughs> like, not a compliment, right? And so he's saying, right, to this group of people, like, hey, it's like there's this wildfire out in the wilderness and the snakes are fleeing from it, right? And he's like, who told you to, fr- to flee? And what he's saying is, look, God's coming judgment is at hand, right? Where he's going to say, this is my way and this isn't. And he says, who warned you to flee? In other words, Take this thing seriously. Don't just try to get away from judgment, but ask the serious question, what does God want in my life? Right? And so he says, take this seriously. And you have to understand why John is actually out in the wilderness to begin with. Like, what's he saying to Israel out by the Jordan about this coming judgment and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? See, John is speaking to these people during a time when Israel had been awaiting this restoration, this, this, this time when their fortunes would be restored. And they've been waiting in anticipation for the day when their God would become king and reign and set them free from their oppressors. Because what happened was they didn't do the things that they had promised to do to their God, and they wound up in captivity in other nations, in exile And while they came back to their land, they were no longer prisoners of Babylon or Assyria or Persia, they were back in their land, but unfortunately things weren't the way they were supposed to be. You see, the Romans were now in charge and oppressing them. And so you had these people who don't worship your God, who are telling you what to do, they're calling the shots and they are running your culture. And so, in a sense, the people who are gathered to hear John know that their exile hasn't ended. And repentance is this word throughout the Old Testament that says, essentially, this is what you need to do to avoid exile, or this is what you need to do to return from exile, or repentance is what you do to restore your fortunes. And so they know this as they're hearing John preach. And so 
during the time of John the Baptist, you have essentially four groups. Israel has split off into these different ways of trying to be Israel, trying to see their fortunes restored, trying to see exile ended. And the first group essentially compromised with the Romans. These were the people who make friends with the bully, right? I'm going to kiss up to the bully if I can't fight the bully. I'm going to join with him and do what the bully does. Others camped out in the desert and waited for the Lord to kick out the bully, right? So just hide from the bully. Others kept a rigorous obedience to the teaching of Moses and, 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 and tried to essentially resist the bully, right? And others were zealous, and as they prayed, they would sharpen their swords, and they tried to attack the bully. But God came and used John the Baptist to say, you know what, your way of being Israel, your way of trying to end exile isn't going to work at all. What you need is the one who came to die for the bully at the hands of the bully to end the powers behind the bully. Sin, death, and the devil. And so what happens then is John comes along and says, you need to repent of your way of being Israel. You need to turn and get ready for the Lord because he's going to come and he's going to become king and you need to get ready for that. And so abandon your old allegiances and be ready to be loyal to your God in a new way. That's what's happening. And so, in order to get with the work of God, in order to get with his salvation, John says, make way. Make room for the Lord in your life. And then he says this. Make or uh, keep, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so the crowds ask a question in chapter 3, verse 10. They say, what then shall we do? Okay, is this a good response or a bad response? Crowd interaction says, good response, right? Good response. So, what do we do? It's a great question to ask God. We, he, he gives an answer here, right? And we might miss what's about to happen. There's this really cool linking going on that Luke is trying to help us see. First of all, uh, John quotes Isaiah 40 and says, make straight paths for the Lord. Let's see that up on the screen, right? And so he uses this word here, right? He says, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, or do straight paths for him. And then he asks, he says for them to do the next thing, which is he says, look, I want you to bear or make fruit in keeping with repentance. Right? If you're really turning towards the Lord in loyalty, I want you to make fruit. Make way, make fruit. And then they say, what do we make? What do we do? That's the next thing that they say, right? So what then should we Make. It's the same Greek word, and we're trying to get this play on God's coming, his salvation's coming, act consistently with it, and they say, what do we need to do to act consistently with it? And here's John's answer, and it's brilliant, and it's simple, and it's actually really startling, because in our American context, when you hear about spirituality, you think about you and God. Or actually, you might just think about you. You might not even think about God, right? Like, we kind of have this me and God mentality. It's all about me. And so there isn't much room in our thinking about others. And John says, when God comes, here's how you get ready for it. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Interesting. So God's coming. Act consistent with that reality. What do we need to do to act consistent with that reality? Well, if you have excess, share it with the person who has need. If you have more than you need... Share it with the person who has less than they need. Interesting. Okay, well, let's test this. Let's see what else John's going to say. Another group comes, a different social group comes, and they say, this says this, verse 12, tax collectors, uh, who are not popular figures, by the way, these are folks who have power over the crowds. Right? So you have the crowds, the people who have power over the crowds, and they say, 
what do we need to do, right? Teacher, what should we do? And he says to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Be, essentially, like, don't do the thing that you have power to do, which is to get more and more and more, but, right, take exactly what you're authorized to take. And then finally, you have the next group, even more powerful than the tax collectors. These are the enforcers who make sure the tax collectors get what they want. Right? And so now they come in. Soldiers also asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. So you have the crowds and you have the tax collectors and you have the soldiers. You have three different social groups. One question. What do we do to prepare for God's reign and rule his kingdom One question, three slightly different answers, but one recurring theme. Each time a group of people ask what they need to do to be rightly related to God, each time John responds with an answer about how they need to treat other people. The answer to what we think is spiritual is social. Fascinating, right? Because God deals with the whole person and the whole world, and he calls us to a right response to everyone. And so the definitive way we should relate is generosity. This is the theme that weaves through John's answer. In each case, generosity is expressed with stuff. Of course, um, generosity uh, always includes stuff, but it goes beyond stuff. And our deepest level of poverty is a soul or spiritual poverty and a relational poverty. And so we're called to do relationships in the name of Jesus while we share our stuff. So let's go back to the question hanging from Isaiah. What are the gaps that are being closed when God comes in his salvation? What do we do? What are are the gaps that are closed? Right? The gaps between the high and the low are being closed. The powerful and the powerless. The rich and the poor. Does how much stuff you have determine how high up you are on the totem pole? Yeah, right? It does. And economically, that's how things work. The more you have... The more resources you have, the higher you are. And when God's kingdom comes, he says, look, it's going to close the gaps. And so he says, like, when that happens, the rich and the poor will get closer together. And so John tells his people to get ready for God's rule by closing the gap between the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, by living generously. So here's the question. Can I be rightly related to God and not to people? Can I be rightly related to God, but not rightly related to people? John's answer is no way, Jose. No. He says, if you want to be rightly related to God, get rightly related to people too. And so, John says, no. Generous relations with others needs to drive you, not getting more stuff. Right? Because the presence of God comes and transforms the relationships we have with each other. This is actually consistent across the whole Bible. Right? So let's go back. Let's rewind to Deuteronomy chapter 15. This is one of these places where we see that right, being rightly related to God means being rightly related to people. Now, Deuteronomy 15 is where Moses preaches his final sermon right before he dies. And, and he's reminding the people of the teaching of God, on how to live as the community of God. And he says this in verse 4, and it's up on the screens too if you are not back there. It says, But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. 
If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. Of course, this didn't happen, right? They ended up borrowing. They ended up being ruled over. Why? Because they didn't obey the voice of the Lord. They forfeited their freedom and became captive because instead of listening to God and living like this, they ended up being owned by others. Verse 7. If among you then one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. I love that. It's not the poor brother. It's your poor brother. It's relational. Catch that. It's huge. Your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. Keep that in mind as well. Whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be any unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give him, give to him, because for the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall, be, shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. What an um, incredible amount of tension in one passage. Right? It begins with, there, there shall be no poor in your land. Or, and then it kind of moves on to, okay, when somebody becomes poor, and then it final, finally lands on, you're always going to have poor people. Like, what's happening? Like, what? God, did you change your mind? What he's doing is as he's, as he's instructing them, he's dealing with what he knows is already going to be resistance in their hearts. So it's like, hey, this shouldn't be. Like, there shouldn't be anybody poor because I'm blessing you. And if you do what I say, then everybody will be fine and we'll have enough. Right? But he's like, I know you're not. So when somebody becomes poor, like, here's what you need to do. And then you're, you're always going to have poor people. So here's what you need to do. It's really actually pretty interesting. And so gaps emerge between rich and poor, between powerful and powerless. And the rich, from Deuteronomy, are called to be responsible to the need of their brothers and sisters, helping whoever has less, right? And so it has to do with sharing my stuff, because it's not my stuff, right? And so they're to give money, but they're also to give help in doing a budget. And hey, here's how you deal with the root problems that are keeping you poor, And so this is this whole person approach. And God is consistent throughout the scriptures in saying, look, generosity is how you do righteousness and justice. Proverbs 14, 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. So what's the opposite of generosity? It's not stinginess. Sin, right? It's despising my neighbor. Uh, Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him, that is, his maker. Right? So there it is again. The relationship with others is directly tied to my relationship with God. Am I a jerk to my friend? That tells me how I am with God. Not good. Right? Am I participating in a system that keeps people poor? I'm despising their creator. Why? Because they're made in his image. 
right? And if I treat his image like that, then that's really revealing how I feel about God to begin with. Does this make sense? Are you with me? Okay. So then it, Proverbs 31.9 talks to the king. Whoever is ruling should rule like this. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Okay, there's this tie all throughout scripture of a righteous person and generosity. Right? We tend to think of righteousness as like me and God, personal piety, like I don't do bad stuff. Right? But righteousness throughout scripture is about right relations in all directions towards God, myself, others, and all creation. Right? That's a righteous person does justice. My two favorite Hebrew words are sedekah and mishpat. Sedekah is righteousness. Mishpat is justice. And those two words are so frequently paired together, you don't know which one means which most of the time. Right? That doing justice is intricately tied to being righteous. So these two things work together. And so Jesus comes on the scene, fast forward to the New Testament, fast forward to the Sermon on the Mount, where the theme is righteousness. He says, John comes and says, God's coming, his kingdom's coming, get ready for it, give your tunics away. Jesus comes and says, God's kingdom is here now in me, right, is among you. So in his Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about what does the kingdom of God do to shape how we live. And so he says, your righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees. These are the religious elite, right? And so he says, your right relations need to go beyond a religious exterior. They need to emerge from the heart. And they surpass that of the Pharisees. And so then fast forward to chapter 6. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he says something I've looked over for years. He says this. Take a look with me. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Most of my life I've read this as try not to get everybody else to think you're awesome by what you do. Like when you do good stuff, don't brag about it, right? Except I've skipped over the key word here, practicing your righteousness. Jesus doesn't say stop practicing righteousness. He just says do it with the right motives and don't do it so everybody will think you're awesome, right? Don't do it selfishly. So he says, practice righteousness, but how, then he gives three examples of what righteous practices are. And I, I've almost always missed the first one. So he says, practice righteousness, and the examples are giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. Right? Giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. Now we totally skip over the first one, don't we? Like, yeah, righteousness, prayer, I shouldn't pray in such a way that I'm a show-off. Right? Or I shouldn't tell everybody when I'm fasting, so that way they think I'm really spiritual. We skip over the first part, that righteousness means giving to the poor. That that generosity is righteousness. That I can't take those two things apart. Now, the opposite of righteous, or the opposite of generosity then, is not stinginess. It's unrighteousness. And that's what Jesus is saying, right? It's like, hey, pay attention to this. And then, in in fact, it's a violation of what God's up to in his kingdom if we do unrighteousness by not practicing generosity. And so this series we're looking at with our stuff, with our words, and with our time. Now, we hear that and we're like, okay, great, um, except I've got a lot of reasons for not being generous, right? We might not know them, but there's a lot of roadblocks to generosity, aren't there? 
Um, there's all kinds of reasons. Sometimes what we deem generous might actually feel pretty stingy to somebody else, right? Or what we might think is stingy is actually a great act of generosity. It's hard to evaluate in others. But the first reason, or the first roadblock here that I think we look at is ignorance. One time in high school, my wife, um, who grew up in San Diego, was hanging out with her friend who had this great idea. Like, I really want to bless uh, the homeless folks in San Diego. That Whenever I drive past somebody, I want to give them just something tangible. And so on like this 90 degree day in San Diego, <laughs> this girl was handing out bags of Chex Mix, right, without water bottles, right? So... Think about the need. <laughs> like, hottest day of the year, I've just made you more thirsty, and I'm not going to do anything about it. Pretty funny, actually. You're like, so Lauren is like, hey, I, don't, I think you can't, that's kind of mean. Like, we've got to give them water bottles if you're giving them checks mix. But sometimes we're just ignorant of the need. And that, that, that sometimes thwarts generosity. We're ignorant of how generosity can make an impact. Sometimes that's just because we don't ask and we don't listen. We kind of come in with our preconceived notions. Another roadblock that frequently happens is we think that uh, whatever it is that I work for, I should get to have and keep, right? This is the idea of entitlement or the attitude of entitlement, where we essentially say, I worked hard for it, I deserve it, it's mine, I can keep it. When Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 gives the reason for work, he kind of has two theologies of work. One is in chapter 6 and one is in chapter 5. But chapter 5, he comes along and says, hey, if you used to steal, you need to do honest work so that you'll have something to contribute to those in need. And so we in America tend to think, I need to work so that I can contribute to my standard of living. Scripture's underlying theology of work is like, yes, you're participating in God's good work of stewarding the creation, but you are also essentially generating something to contribute to those in need. Right? And so it's a flip on how we view work. And so entitlement ultimately thwarts uh, our, our generosity. But then there's another one I think even more powerful. And that's when we buy into the story that we won't be happy until we have more. When we buy into the narrative that says, I won't be valuable until I have more valuable things. You ever buy into that? Oh, okay, I'm alone. Because I buy into that. I totally buy into that. And I know you do too. Where we buy into this narrative that says, I'll be more if I have more. Matthew 6, where Jesus says this, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is this, this third roadblock. It's essentially idolatry, right? Because Jesus says this. He follows that up with a very good, wise warning where he says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one or love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus names it. He's like, look, I know you make money a God, so look, you can't serve God and money. The reason many of us fail to be to live lives of radical generosity is because ultimately we're not serving God, right? We're storing up treasures on earth. We might serve God a little, but ultimately we're trying to play the field, right? Where we a little bit of service to God, where as long as it doesn't interrupt my service to money. I don't want to serve in that ministry because it would mean some less overtime and I might get skipped over at the promotion and then 
Right? And we play this game where really we're seeking after our culture's God. And our culture's God is totally money. Most often money, power, success, pleasure. And by the way, money is a pretty lame God. If you de- I mean, if you really deconstruct it and analyze it on a, just a, like a theology level, like think about money really answers no significant worldview questions. In other words, it's a pretty dumb God, right? The, the best worldview a- answer it offers is that everything's about power. Right? And that's really not very satisfactory because it offers no consolation to pain or evil or suffering. Right? So in other words, it just numbs us and distracts us. It doesn't deal with evil. A God should deal with evil. Right? It, it offers us no hope past right now. In other words, it's an impotent God. And, and it can't really bring people together. It's not a relational God. In fact, all it does is it brings one community together to exploit another community. And so it's actually a God that hurts community rather than helps it. And so in your Bible, it's really clear that money isn't the problem. The love of money is the problem. The idolatry of our stuff is a very, very dangerous thing. If you have too much money, it can be really dangerous to your life because it can actually feed your own selfishness and draw you further and further down a path, ultimately, that leads away from God. And so Jesus then offers us some hope. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, we shall, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these, NIV says, run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom. Run after the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There's that word again. And all these things will be added to you. So in order to get over our greatest hurdle of, uh, to generosity, we have to deconstruct our idols, right? The false gods of stuff that we've made, right? And so we kind of deconstruct my house and say, you know what? It's not ultimate. It doesn't offer me my security. We deconstruct our car. It doesn't really offer me identity or my finances or my, the things I've collected. Right? Not that they're bad in themselves. But Jesus says, don't run after it. What does he mean, don't run after it? Or seek first the kingdom. Okay, who remembers the ice cream truck from when they were a kid? What happened when you heard that sound? You dropped everything, right? You're like, I don't care about the Legos. I don't care about what's on the stove. Mom, cash, now, gotta go, right? And you just, you took out, out the door, like, maybe you didn't even have shoes or pants on, but you were, like, did not matter. Like, I am getting that Mickey Mouse shaped chocolate ice cream, whatever. Or some of you were into, like, the multicolor blue, white, red thing. That was just kind of disappointing. But anyway, you have this, this thing where, you run after it. And when you're running after something, when you're seeking it, what do you, what's happening? Everything else is falling to the periphery. Right? The thing you're running after is your focus. And you're willing to sacrifice for that. It narrows your focus. You go after it to obtain it. And so it has your allegiance and your loyalty and your desire. And so how do you know when you're running after stuff? How do you know when it has you seeking it? Um, I came up with a list of the top five, way, five ways you know when you're running after stuff more than God. When you're running after the Jesus of cash more than you're running after the Jesus of Nazareth. Can we see those? Uh, so there you go. I thought that would be cute. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's like on par with like a Ron Carlson joke right there. So, so all right. Top five 
ways we know when we're seeking the Jesus of bling more than the Jesus of Nazareth. All right. First of all, I fantasize more about what I would do with more money than I reflect on what I can do with what I have. Again, that's the thing that controls my fantasy life is what would I do if I had more rather than reflecting on what could I do, can I do with what I have? Probably the only person who deals with this one, so let's go to the next one. <laughs> right? Okay. I get grumpy when I have to give something away. Right? That's how I, that's part of the way I know I'm running after the Jesus of cash more than the Jesus of Nazareth, the res- crucified and resur- resurrected Christ. I get grumpy when I have to give something away. Okay. Next thing is I, I'm more bothered by my lack of what I want than your lack of what you need. If, I, if I'm really being honest, I'm more bummed that I don't have what I want than you don't have what you need. And when we get to that place and I realize that that's happening, it tells me I'm running after stuff. I'm not running after the kingdom of heaven. Fifth thing, oh no, fourth thing, is I feel like some, someone else would be better suited to be giving. It's just not my spiritual gift. Right? Yeah. Right? Generosity, not my spiritual gift. Guess what? Generosity is not on the list of spiritual gifts, and it is on the list of what's righteous. So, it's all of our gifts, right? If you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the life of Christ today. Fifth thing is, I think more about what I have to lose than what God has given or has to give. Now, we know there's more to be on the list, but those are the top five things that I are indicators in my life it tells me when I'm running the wrong direction, when I need to repent and make fruit in keeping with repentance by doing or making generosity a discipline in my life. Now, here's the great irony. When I run after stuff as if it will give me happiness, I don't get either, right? I don't get enough stuff because I always want more, and I don't get happiness because I always want different stuff. But when I run after the kingdom... I get both, right? I, I get the stuff that I need and the happiness I can't lose. This is the message Jesus is saying in John six, or Matthew 6. Right? He says, look, right? doesn't it sound better to go my way than constantly worrying about what you're going to get? Because God knows what you need, and so he'll give it to you. He cares about the flowers, and he makes those look beautiful. He'll take care of you. So run after him instead. And we make him our primary allegiance, God becomes God, and stuff isn't anymore, and that actually frees us to be generous. Now, here's where we have to go in order to understand the power and the motivation, because otherwise it's just moralism, right? If you just look at this message and you go, wow, I have to be a righteous person, that means to be more giving, to be more generous, right? So I just need to be more and do more and try harder. Well, that doesn't really work, it's not sustainable, and that's also not the message of Scripture. What Scripture's trying to get us to do is to see God for who He is. So go back to Luke chapter 3. Flip back there with me. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. John, is, or John the Baptist has given these amazing insights in how you prepare for God, that you get right with people by living generously with what God's given you, right? And so the people are starting to get excited, right? Verse 15, the people were filled with expectation. They were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, the Messiah, right? This coming king. Verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, But one who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What in the world? 
This text tells us two things. It tells us where the power for generosity is and it tells us where the motivation is. The power, right, is the Holy Spirit. John promised that the person coming after him would give God's gift, the gift of the Spirit of God, to come and empower the people of God to live with the character of God as the new community of God. And that happens through the empowerment of the Spirit. And if you're reading Luke's two-volume work, Luke and Acts, you look for the Spirit across the whole story and you see how incredibly powerful it is. Here he's foreshadowed, Spirit's going to come, He's going to help you live this way. He's going to bring the kingdom in your own hearts. And then Acts 1, Jesus says to his disciples, Hey, hang on right here. Wait for my spirit to come. Acts 2, the spirit comes. And people are like, Hey, it's 9 in the morning. You guys are already wasted? What's happening? They're like, No, the spirit's come. And we're understanding each other's language. And God's fulfilled his word and keeps his promise. Wow, awesome. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 31 when they had finished praying, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, right? This is, they're starting to get persecuted, crunches on, and they say, God, give us boldness. We want the gospel to go forward, and so give us boldness. The room shakes, right? And it says, and all were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Verse 32, now, what does the Spirit empower us to do? This. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that anything of their things belonged to them was their own that belonged to them was their own but they had everything in common okay and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the lord people are selling their stuff and they're saying hey i want jesus to be embraced in portland i want people to know jesus in portland i'm going to pray for boldness so i'm going to downsize my home i'm not going to cling to my neighborhood anymore I'm willing to go with the more economical car. I'm willing and I'm excited to sacrifice a possible promotion in order to be more present with my neighbors or to be more present in the place of hurt. Right? I'll cash in on stock to help do development work here. Or whatever that is, that's the kind of reality that's happening here in Acts chapter 4. So the Spirit provides the power, but ultimately what the Spirit does is He helps us experience the motivation. And what's the motivation? Go back, and what does John say? He says, the person who's coming is mightier than I, the thongs of whose sand- or the straps of whose sandals, right? Uh, is I'm not even worthy to untie those. Now, zoom out for a second and go, what's happening? Who's John? What's his vocation? John's a prophet, right? In Israel, in the social structure of his day, who's at the top? Right? Kings, but then there's one above him who gets to call the king out, the prophet. So John's at the top of the pecking order in his society. Right? Now, occasionally an Israelite would become a servant or essentially like this slave, right? And so they had these tasks that were kind of gross, but they... The idea in Israel was that Israelites are too dignified for some jobs. And one job that no Israelite was ever allowed to do because it was far too below their dignity, right, is to untie people's shoes and wash their feet. That would be the one job completely inappropriate for any Israelite to do, for any other Israelite or any Gentile. And so John, the top of the pecking order, says, I am not worthy to do the lowest job because of the uniqueness of the one who's coming to give the empowerment of the Spirit. Now, what does that say to us? Why is that motivating? Because when you see Jesus for who he really is, you see the King of Kings that we just sang about who comes in glory, 
the one who is at the ultimate top of the pecking order, God himself in the flesh, gets down on his knees and washes the feet of his disciples to symbolize the true act of servanthood, which is his death on the cross to make sinners clean. And when you grasp Jesus for who he is, that he's the one who came and served us, who was generous to us, it motivates you. It changes how you think and feel and act. Right? The one who came under no obligation to give everything in order to be with us, in order to wash us, to make us clean from sin, from shame, from failure, on and on and on, in order to close the ultimate gap between heaven and earth. When you see him for who he is, then guess what? You're a Christian. And you just want to be generous. Because you realize the ultimate generosity of the God who's loved you and given himself for you. And so you don't need money to keep you secure. You don't need things to give you an identity. You don't need stuff to give you happiness. Because the one who's given himself up for you and loves you offers you real security that lasts beyond stuff. Offers you a real identity that is of grace, not your own effort. Who offers you real happiness, joy, in spite of your circumstances. And when you get that, it frees you to be generous with what you have. Now, we need to uh, talk now about, like, what do you do? So what? What are the things you actually take and apply? If that's true of your heart, if you've embraced Jesus as Lord, as the one who's mightier than I... Right? And we realize I'm not worthy to untie his sandals and yet he's given everything to be with us. What do you do? Well, we make a practice of generosity. Right? We gotta, we gotta make a practice of it. This is about planned generosity as well as spontaneous generosity. And this church, by the way, has been a disciplined, generous church in the sense of you have made it a discipline to be generous, not just to Cedar Mill, but to agencies and people all throughout Portland and the whole world. And that is amazing. This debt, we're debt-free on this building because you were generous. We're, we, we support missionaries and families that are hurting. And we have the staff that we have and we have the building that we have without debt because of your generosity. I remember when Hurricane Katrina hit. What, did, what happened here? You went out in droves to the south to actually rebuild and come alongside and love and to give. With Jesus' table, one of our midweek ministries that feeds folks in our own building, is sustained not by your giving, but by the actual volunteers who say, I'm here to serve and I'm going to put my money where my mouth is too. I mean, what an amazing, generous heart. But it doesn't happen automatically, does it? This doesn't just happen. It happens because we implement what God has put in our hearts. We make a practice of it. In just a second, uh, we're going to see a video of Dick and Mary Pearson who have been faithful in their conviction to give to the work of God in his world for more than 65 years. And I think what they have to say will be encouraging. Let's take a look at what Dick and Mary have to say about their experience of giving. shall be given unto you. <laughs> oh, man, you're pressed down, running over. <laughs> and it happens. It's wonderful. 
our first check every month is still to our church, which happens to be Cedar Mill Bible Church. And then let God take it from there. Uh, he's just done amazing things. And if I could sit down with anyone, I'd be glad to go on for however long you've got to tell you the way God has, has worked miracles. I found out that a 1931 S. Penny was worth $60. And I had an old penny collection in a, in a trunk and went and found it. And it had a 31 S. Penny in good condition. And that took care of the first year of our missionary support. You've heard the expression, money talks, and that people respond by saying, yeah, and all it ever says to me is goodbye. But when we give to the Lord, the money says, God be with you till we meet again. Numbers have shared this with me. They said, we just don't have enough money to tithe. And then they decided they would go up and give God a chance to show them what he could do. And they said that they did better on their 90% with God than on 100% on their own. If you want blessing from God, you give. And if you want the other, <laughs> you withhold. And you are the one who is the loser, really, because God is a great blesser. The biggest thing is learning to listen to God and then do what He says. And That's great. What a, what a joy, right? Wow. I love the joy on their faces as they talk about God's faithfulness to them and the joy of actually blessing others and giving it. And so very practically, then, what do we do? We need to wrap this up. Personally, you know, we kind of divide, in our family, divide generosity into spontaneous and planned, right? Without the planned, we'd probably never be spontaneous, right? But with the planned, it kind of becomes a focus of like, hey, that money's not in my account every month. Gosh, where else should I be? Uh, spontaneously taking care of, care of people. And we kind of divide it into four categories. You could do it a whole bunch of different ways, but we really do believe in the work of the local church. And so, like, we give online to Cedar Mill because, you know what, I, I will forget every single Sunday because I've got something else on my mind. So, I like, you know, but I do. We just like, hey, let's make sure we give to the local church. We have a missionary we support, and we have, uh, a, like, a, a friend who's doing great development work in Rwanda, and we support him as well. But then we leave, like, a budget line for spontaneous like, how are we going to make sure we are paying attention to the needs of those around us? And so, you know, that's, that's just kind of how we approach it with those two things. My wife would give everything we have away, and I am totally Scrooge McDuck and would be like, no way, don't give anything away. Like, we got to hold on to that, can't replace that. And so our marriage dynamic is actually really constructive, where I get, I get 
kind of stretch to learn how to be generous. And my wife and I just kind of learn how to do this as wisely and generously as we can. And it's a constant growing thing. But one of the things you need to do is, am I in relationship with folks where there's a need? Am I being reminded of the fact that there is need beyond that, that, that actually casts a vision for what I could do with my cash and my stuff more than just my own personal comfort. The, the other practice is really just, am I looking out for great examples of generosity? Because when we do, it inspires us, and we think, I could do that too. I could make a difference, and we need that. Uh, the other thing is, don't just make it about a set number, right? It's always about, what what is God saying in my life? What Dick said. And Luke 12 says so much. He's, Jesus says, "To much, who much is given, much is required." And, and and something that is said often is, God doesn't look at what we give, but what we keep. That there's a sense at which I I don't need to give as much as somebody who has far more, right? But what what am I giving? What am I doing with the things God's given me? Am I hoarding, or am I letting things flow to people in need to do righteousness? And then give things away that you'd want to, not just the junk that you don't want. That's a great practice, by the way, right? Because it's not generous. That's just waste disposal. So, all right? Um, and then recognize, too, that, you know, I can either give it away now and make a difference or I can leave it behind, really, with no, no sense of meaning. Uh, and have a vision for our investments that goes way past my own standard of living towards kingdom life and how God's bringing his kingdom. Now, there's, those are just a few ways that we can practice generosity, but ultimately it's a, a relational characteristic that flows out of intimate communion with God. And that's where we need to turn right now, to communion, to, to the ultimate tangible reminder of the very physical gift of God to us, that Jesus came in the flesh and shed his blood. That when we come and we receive this bread and this cup, what we're saying is we're, we're proclaiming the Lord's death for us. We're, we're embracing the generosity of God for us and we're saying look I take this in I'm nourished by the very physical presence uh, the physical body of Christ given for me his physical blood shed for me and so we we remember and we also participate in this reality and we proclaim it and we say to God again I need to be nourished by your gift of generosity to be empowered and motivated to go out and live in the righteous way that you call me to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, the ultimate gift, the righteous one, the the generous one. Thank you for the ways in which this bread and cup speaks to us and, and tells us again whose we are and whom we are and whom we worship. Thank you for your generosity. We pray, Lord, that you would send us out empowered to be a light Uh, motivated and and empowered by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Welcome you to come receive from the table the bread and the cup to take it on your own between you and the Lord and worship.